you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. Almost caught you there. I know. I'm, you know, every week I'm getting a little bit more used to it. But I, if it makes you feel better, I still email your Ottoman address. So somebody over there is getting lots of emails. <laughs> there's, a, there's a workaround for that. I'm going to show you after. Um, but yeah, I'm so excited. This is a really special episode. We're touching on a topic that we discussed last year, um, but it's kind of from a different perspective, water and the 10 across uh, conference that happened recently in Phoenix. And the first one was in Baton Rouge. In Baton Rouge. That's right. Yeah. That's right. We had Justin on the show, I think, to talk about it. And we've had him on before. So we're it's nice to have him back. But we have a new guest with yes, us. I'm so excited to welcome to Delta Dispatches, David Festa, Vice President of Ecosystems with Environmental Defense Fund, my organization. Oh, look and, how that worked out. Huh? Funny, uh, funny. Welcome to the show, David. I'm super excited to be here. Let's bring your boss to work day. <laughs> yeah, bring your boss to the podcast day. So, David, you have been working on these issues for a very long time. I, know you're... I think dawn of time. <laughs> you're based out in the Bay Area, but um, you, you can't, you're in New Orleans for some meetings, and we had the opportunity to go to a lovely establishment uh, last night. We did. And I just, you know, want to highlight to Simone that David and I were able to have some gumbo with potato salad. In oh, it. we've had great debates about potato salad in the gumbo or out of the gumbo. We've had long talks about gumbo. We talk about food, um, birds and oysters quite a bit on this show. So that's all you. <laughs> I'm in the right place. Yeah. Cocktails. And, uh, oh, yeah. I'm never leaving. So we usually have a food and wine show that that comes before us. And there's always this idea that we should, you know, why, why can't we just just merge the shows. Um, uh, Jacques and I have never had a drink during the show. Well, you'll have to remedy that at some point. <laughs> but you're uh, overall a fan of the potato salad and the gumbo? Uh, thumbs up. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. We, we like it. So, David, you know, you're no stranger to challenges of water, particularly here in Louisiana. Um, you've been on a flyover um, of our coast. Um, you know, for you, you know, how has your experience over time shaped the way that you view the challenges here in Louisiana? So I grew up on the East Coast, uh, coastal Virginia and coastal South Carolina. Um, and my earliest memories were uh, we would, my dad was a professor. So, you know, he, uh, we'd have the summer off basically. Yeah. And we'd go to this um, island off of South Carolina. And I was essentially feral. Uh, as were all the other, there was about 20 families that would go there and we would go, you know, we were just on our own. And that's where I fell in love with the environment. It's actually where I learned how to deal with people, you know, on our own. We were mildly, lightly supervised and you had to like, you know, figure out how, and, and really saw that interconnection between people and, and nature. Well, that island is Kiowa Island, which some of your listeners may know is now a big resort, um, big golf tournaments and things like that there. And, you know, I remember when uh, it was the island was sold uh, by the family that owned it uh, to the developers and remember thinking at the time, you know, what a what a tragedy that was um, because the family didn't want to sell. But the state had changed the tax code that. Um, the island was under from agriculture. It was bought for um, pine, heart pine oh, in the mm-hmm. 20s. And they did a little bit of lumbering, you know, enough to make the economics work. Mm-hmm. And But uh, they changed, uh, changed the tax code to commercial resi- or, uh, resort. 
And of course, the family could no longer afford it. And that's that was a seminal moment for me, because that's when I realized that the environment, economic growth and, and policy all have to go hand in hand. It isn't about just setting aside someplace and nobody can ever go there. It's about how do we reintegrate these things into our economy so that we can enjoy great places, beautiful nature. Nature can work for us like the mm -hmm. river works can work for us here. So that's my background. That's how I got into it. That's why I'm so passionate about this. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that experience of kind of growing up down the bayou or down the road. <laughs> On um, the shore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> resonates with many people who grew up here in Louisiana. Um, so the, the, the scenery is very similar. You know, mm -hmm. the salt marshes and, you know, if you don't really know your way around, how easy it is to get lost if you're in a canoe and, you know, the reeds are only three feet high, but that's still two feet above your head. So, right. yeah. 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 But I think the same concern also exists, right? That, that we we are pricing people out of, mm -hmm. of a place because you basically have to be self-insured or, you right. know, that that is a concern that resonates here in, in Louisiana is that, you know, if it if this uh, area has to turn recreational because no one can afford the insurance to live there, you know, so it's it's amazing how that that runs in the same vein mm -hmm. here as well, too. Mm -hmm. So, David, I think our audience is very familiar with the work that EDF is doing here in Louisiana in terms of helping to restore the Mississippi River Delta using sediment diversions and other coastal master plan projects to do that. Can you paint a picture of some of the work that's happening through ecosystems more broadly beyond Louisiana, mm -hmm. you know, out west or other places that EDF yeah. works? The kind of problems that we're attracted to are very similar to what's going on here. In other words, you have an environmental problem. But solving the environmental problem really is all about working with the environment mm -hmm. instead of working against the environment or trying to control it somehow. So uh, out west, we're working on water shortage. I'm sure we'll be talking more about that. Uh, but one of the things that's really important there is helping rural communities, particularly agricultural communities, figure out how they're going to thrive, mm -hmm. even though water stress is going to be greater. And one of the ways that we're looking at that is uh, in California, for example, we need to restore a lot of habitat in order to protect species who are threatened with extinction. A bunch of that habitat's on farmland. So in order to, instead of just telling farmers, hey, you can't use as much water, why don't we say, look, let's map where, what parts of your farmland are great for wildlife and we have payments for wildlife and what parts of your land are really high productive for crops. Let's keep the water on those high productive areas and take the areas that are actually better for wildlife and farm wildlife uh, on those on that land. So that way there's still an active economy and we're getting our wildlife benefit and we're getting all those great uh, fruits and nuts that uh, <laughs> that we get from from California. That's kind of that's that's sort of the same stru the structure of the problem up in the upper Midwest uh, where the problem is polluted runoff from farms and ranches, that's sort of the same kind of idea. Let's get together with some of the cities who need to clean up the water. It's cheaper to clean up the water by uh, helping farmers put in buffer strips to soak up some of the pollution before it hits the rivers. It's cheaper to help farmers learn how to farm in, in techniques that create less runoff. And by the way, when they do that, it increases their, their yield or makes their yields mm -hmm. more stable. So again, it's it's really about finding ways that we can work with nature to the benefit of of our own selves and to the environment that we all know and love. Yeah, we had a chance to go to California last summer. My husband had spent some time there, but we actually drove quite a bit. We drove mm -hmm. from kind of middle to south. And I was amazed. Uh, we went through a lot of agriculture, but 
signs, billboards about water. And, and it just, it was kind of, uh, it wasn't funny. There's not a better word for that, but how ironic that I come from a place that we talk about the same issues, but same thing, billboards and signs and, you know, um, amazing, just different issue, you know, but, but all revolving around water, not, not enough, too much, not good enough, right? Mm-hmm. The quality is not good enough. So that struck me about California that it was, it was interesting to see. And if I may, the root of the problem, there's a very common root of the problem, which is that starting 100 years ago, we got the great idea that the way rivers work wasn't good enough for us. <laughs> so we wanted yeah. to make the rivers work different. And we did. And it, it did what we wanted to at the time, but it also has created these problems. Uh, I know you guys have probably done flyovers. You've done flyovers <laughs> here. And I've, I've done flyover. And I remember one time flying over and I was with a colleague from California who was looking at the, the uh, Mississippi River as it headed down to the bird's foot. And it was a high water event. And so really all you could see were the, the levees on the side. And he goes, oh, I get it. We're trying to maintain a river in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> and if you flew over California, yeah. you'd see rivers in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Not because that's where they naturally are, but we've dug all these canals. Mm-hmm. And so here we, we've, we've created rivers in the ocean, <laughs> rivers in the desert. Uh, and yes, engineering is a critical part of our future, but we've got to figure out how to work more in partnership with nature, which is what you guys are doing so well here. What uh, I, I love the the name, you know, restore or retreat. Yeah. It's like, you know, our options are pretty simple here. Yeah. Uh, so at the structure of these problems is the same. And I think we can learn a lot from each other. Well, we have a lot more to get into and in talking about that connectivity. We're going to bring Justin Aaronworth on in the next segment. We'll be right back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Aber with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore a Retreat. That was a good conversation. Great conversation, and I'm sure this next segment will be no different. We're welcoming back another, a, a repeat guest, a friend of the show that we've had on in the past, Justin Aaronworth, President and CEO of the Water Institute of the Gulf. Welcome back, Justin. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be back. So I know you were listening to that first segment. So anything sound familiar to you? Water, too much, not enough. <laughs> Where's it going? Where did it come from? What's wrong with it? Any of that sound familiar to you? There were a lot of things that sounded familiar, but the most important thing I wanted to comment on was the potato salad or not in the gumbo. <laughs> because, you know, my, my, my wife is from Opelousas and they have this very deep tradition of the potato salad in. And so if you don't like the potato salad, I don't know. I think that says something about your soul. Um, so. <laughs> so wait, wait. Dana's an in, in the gumbo kind of girl, right? Oh, very much so. And her, her mama makes the best gumbo that's ever been made. And her grandmother, uh, at the age of 90 years old, uh, still makes homemade potato salad um, uh, every year for, uh, for Christmas and for Easter. So we're getting, we're getting ready. We're going to have to do a whole episode on kinds of potato salad Mm -hmm. because you got like mustard base and you got mayonnaise base. And one of my grandmas made it like almost like mashed potato salad. Well, yeah, I mean, my grandmother always did her. You make your own mayonnaise, right? And it was just potatoes. Oh, yeah. I make my own mayonnaise. mayonnaise And nothing else. Oh, yeah. No relish. Oh, whole nother show. Whole nother show. Thank you for opening that up, (laughs) Mr. Aaronworth. Can we we talk about the Water Institute? We want to spend some time later about uh, your connection with with David. But can we talk about some things? What are y'all up to over at the Water Institute? Well, the thing we spend uh, uh, a great 
deal of our time focusing on right now is how we can continue to help and support uh, the state as it moves forward, both with the implementation of the master plan as approved in 2017, as well as, you know, looking forward to uh, 2023. You know, I think one of the things, and I know you've had a number of guests uh, to talk about this, but you think about, you know, master plan 2023. Well, 2023 sounds like it's a, a long way in the distance, but it really isn't. Uh, when you think about uh, uh, how much is involved uh, in this process and what a really remarkable process uh, the state of Louisiana runs. So uh, that has been uh, uh, and will continue to be a, a big focus of ours. Uh, we're, we're doing some uh, innovative work uh, that, uh, Simone, you're a big partner in uh, with the Restore Retreat uh, in the Fushan area, which uh, we might talk about a little bit later. Uh, and we're also excited about some of the things we're doing outside of uh, Louisiana, both in the Gulf and uh, and beyond. So we've been um, working with the city of Houston uh, in the 100 Resilient Cities Program from the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, the Water Institute is the uh, strategy partner. So we're the, we're the lead entity working on the resiliency strategy for the city of Houston uh, following Hurricane Harvey. And that's just been a fascinating process because we're, we're really taking a lot of the insights that we learned in Louisiana following uh, Hurricanes Katrina and Rita and bringing those insights uh, to our friends uh, in Houston and also talking with others uh, outside the city of Houston, Harris County and beyond on the Texas coast. So it's been uh, a, just a great experience to get to know our, our friends and neighbors uh, in Texas uh, better. And, I'll, and I'll, finally, I'll mention um, we've started some work in, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, in Charleston, uh, we're, we're now doing a uh, Dutch Dialogues uh, a process along with our friends at uh, David Wagner and Wagner and Ball, uh, which is another just fascinating place. A lot of the same challenges that we see here in, uh, in Louisiana in the Gulf, but some other ones that are, that are particularly unique, including seismic challenges. So uh, lots, of, uh, lots of stuff going on. We've welcomed some, uh, some really great new staff members uh, recently. So we're, we've been having a lot of fun. Uh, over at the Institute and uh, enjoy these busy times. Yeah, certainly no shortage of things to do um, in the Gulf and beyond. And Justin, and uh, our listeners may have seen you and your colleague, Scott Hemmerling, were recently featured uh, in a series of NBC nightly films entitled The Water's Edge, which was all about Louisiana's land loss crisis um, and some of the restoration projects that are being proposed. For those who may have not seen it, what tell us a little bit about the, the films and what they covered. Yeah, it was an interesting, uh, an interesting process. So they did... Uh, in the end, it's it's I think still on their website. Um, they did a, a series of ten short uh, videos, and they looked at different aspects of the set of challenges that we face, as well as the the solutions that were uh, that were putting forward. So I thought they did a, they did a, a wonderful job um, interviewing and getting comments from a, a lot of our friends and stakeholders. Uh, I think they could always have uh, reached out to more. I mean, there are a lot of people who are involved in this work who uh, were not uh, a part of that, which is the one thing I wish we could uh, we could have changed about it. But it was great to see that national uh, perspective. And they did a, you know, they have great product production capabilities and all that kind of stuff. But to, to have that frame and have that attention on our set of uh, our set of issues here, where it's not just the challenges that are, are focused on, but also some of the innovative solutions um, that was uh, that was really nice to see. Yeah, I agree, Justin. It's it's um, it was almost uh, refreshing, right, to see. Um, you know, we get so busy in the work that we do all the time, but to kind of step back and to see, you know, a different 
perspective or maybe even outsider's perspective, like what NBC did, you know, and at first I wasn't going to watch the ones of, of, you know, some of the topics I didn't like. And then you have, you know, you're reminded that this is complicated, that the solutions here are as complicated as the problems, but it's always interesting to see what people from the outside um, see when they come here. You know, it's something that me, you and Jock and even David to have to talk about every day. It's, People are complex and the issues are complex. And so um, it's interesting to see it from that different perspective. So um, it also focused on the people, you know, and that that's really important to the work that we do. And and you mentioned uh, we, we are always happy to talk about our friends and partners at Port Fouchon, the work that we're doing. We hope to cover that later. But also wanted to mention the work that we're doing with Scott Hemmerling. He's doing some really exciting work focused on people and communities. And, and we're proud to be part of a, a project with him um, that focuses in, you know, my part of the world and, and Terrebonne and Lafouche and dives deep into, into that community. Uh, and so I just wanted to thank you for, for supporting Scott and his work there, um, but also helping us tell this complicated story. Oh, well, thank you, Simone. I mean, it's, it's so much fun uh, working with you. And, you know, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, the, the, and I think David commented on this earlier, you know, we, of course, are focused on the environment. Uh, but a big part of that, of course, is the, is the people. And so Scott Hemmerling uh, is the director of the Institute's Human Dimensions Group. Uh, which is our group of uh, our group of social scientists who help to make the links between the physical and natural sciences that uh, the institute is probably best known for to what is so critically important, tying that uh, to the to what does that mean from an economic perspective, from a community perspective, a cultural heritage perspective. So, the the opportunity to work with you, Simone, and restore retreat on the on the project that we're collaborating on is just it's awesome for us. So we're we're really grateful. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, so Justin. You know, we're coming up on the ninth anniversary of the BP oil spill, um, which, you know, I'm sure for you as many is hard to believe it's been that long. But are you um, pleased with the progress of restoration and recovery that's happening across the Gulf? And and are you seeing signs of hope? Uh, I think I'm an optimist, so I always see signs of uh, hope. Um, I think there's been a lot of good work that's been done. Uh, frankly, I wish we were moving uh, even faster, uh, you know, in my before I joined the Water Institute, I was I was very involved in the uh, in the litigation and then the settlement and then ultimately the the, the various uh, processes to get the money out the door for restoration. And you know it was great to have the largest environmental settlement in our nation's history and to have all these dollars coming back uh, here to the to the Gulf Coast. One of the challenges is that it comes in over a fifteen year period. And that has its pros and cons, right? You have a guaranteed source over 15 years, but you, you, it comes in over a 15-year period. And because of the federal laws, you can't spend the money uh, or even obligate it until it's in the uh, until it's in the treasury. So I am uh, uh, very optimistic. I am really encouraged by what what we see uh, from the from the, the this horrible disaster where 11 people died and and, and our, our coast was so uh, so injured. Uh, I just I'm eager to see uh, things move forward and, and continue to move forward as quickly as possible. I think that's certainly a sentiment that we share, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners share as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think we'll be highlighting you know various projects that have advanced, but always expressing the need for urgency and for more. So, Justin, if you mind hanging on, we want to talk about the Ten Across Conference and bring David back uh, to talk about the connectivity 
in issues of water from the Gulf all the way out west. So you're listening to Delta Dispatches. As a reminder, you can always find Delta Dispatches online at deltadispatches.org. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Aver with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malas with Restore or Retreat. It's time for our coastal stat or fact of the week. And the fact of the week is that Jacques usually does this for me, and he didn't this week. <laughs> so that is the fact of the week. <laughs> we have our Rolodex of stats. So uh, let's see, we could do the football field, we could do the 100 million tons of sediment, you know, uh, 2,000 square I miles. I like the fact lot. is that Jacques usually does my homework. And and, um, and so we're, uh, we'll take a break. We'll make you come up with your own facts. Um, send them to jabear at edf. Dot org if you have a fact uh, to share with us. So uh, now that we're having some fun, let's tackle our fun question of the week. So it's now fair and festival time. It's always fair and festival time here in Louisiana. So my fun question, let's start with David. What is your favorite festival food? Uh, that's a tough one. There is so much good food here, but I think I think the winner would be the Sazerac. <laughs> you like to drink yeah, yours. Yeah. <laughs> Justin, that's hard to top. How about you? That is hard to top. Um, so I'll, I'll have a Sazerac to drink, but what I'd like to eat, um, my favorite thing that I look forward to in the season is, is the Cochon Delay Po' Boy mm-hmm. um, at Jazz Fest. There's that one. And then the Soft Shell Crab Po' Boy is my, it's the close second. Um, so I, I didn't have to choose, right? <laughs> no, no, no one's forcing you. I, Good I, answer. I, I, I commend the rejection of the tyranny of ore. <laughs> <laughs> and I also validate the Cochandelay Po' Boy <laughs> at Jazz Fest. Um, so welcome back, David and Justin. You both were recently in Phoenix um, for the second uh, Ten Across Water Summit. Uh, and last year we had um, Jeff Aber, who's also with the Water Institute of the Gulf, as well as the Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Paris on to discuss the first Ten Across uh, Summit that was actually held at the Water Institute we, in Baton Rouge. We never took them up on going over there and doing a show. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm, I'm, I'm We're going to have to follow up. Mm-hmm. Never's a big word. I think <laughs> yeah. you have not yet. Yeah, yeah. David is my new favorite person <laughs> on this show. We're still going to have to check in on things in Paris uh, soon. So, so uh, Justin, tell us a little bit about the Ten Across Water Summit and what it seeks to accomplish. Yeah, so uh, the idea is that there are uh, important issues in common as you look across the I-10 corridor. Uh, so you're really talking about Los Angeles uh, all the way to Jacksonville, uh, Florida. And on the one hand, you might say, well, what does New Orleans have in common with Phoenix? What does LA have in common with Houston? Uh, how is Jacksonville at all like Baton Rouge? And as you get into the discussion, uh, whether it's water, questions around resiliency more generally, you find out that there are actually a lot of common uh, challenges and some common solutions. One of the things that we spent uh, the most time talking about in both the the inaugural conference in Baton Rouge as well as in Phoenix was the process of adaptation. And how do you do that in a thoughtful way, recognizing the humanity of people um, while at the same time, this need to either move or change practices or change ways of life. And it it involves gut-wrenching decisions no matter where you are in this uh, in this geography, 
So the, the, the conference was really around how do you approach that set of challenges from a rigorous perspective, scientific and technical, as well as a, a, a humane uh, perspective that recognizes deep cultural ties and historical ties. And needless to say, it's a very complicated and difficult set of issues, but I think we had some amazing people from around the country and in and around the world who shared uh, uh, great ideas and best practices. And David, uh, you weren't at the initial uh, summit in, in Baton Rouge, but having or having worked on issues of water and resilience and ecosystems um, broadly uh, across geographies, how did you find the conversation at this year's 10 Across Summit? Uh, well, first of all, let me say when I first heard about the uh, 10 Across, I think I was up at the Water Institute and I said, oh, my God, I want to go to that. <laughs> uh, so it, it's a it's a brilliant, brilliant idea. And the panel I was on, um, really the theme, I, I was surprised by the theme. But the more I thought about it, the more I was right. And the theme actually was democracy. And the idea is that the path you can't get to democracy without actually getting your vision of your future right. And more and more, the environment is really shaping how whether we're going to thrive or not because changing climate and additional pressures, we have to get the environment right. And that's that's got to be about our democracy. And the first thing in democracy is bottom-up vision of what the future is. You know, our founding fathers didn't write to King George and say, what do you think America should look like? They, they invented it themselves. And when you look here, at the coastal master plan and exercises like changing course, that was bottom up. When you look at one of the great breakthroughs that just happened in the West, um, it's a thing that sounds really stultifyingly boring, the <laughs> drought contingency plan, but it's essentially an agreement by three states to reduce their withdrawals of water from the Colorado River. But that again was a group of people getting together bottom up. What's the vision? How do we do trade-offs? How do we come back into balance with the assets that nature provides us, whether it's land out here, water out there? Uh, and then how are we gonna how are we gonna govern it? How do we want to make choices going forward in the future? And you asked Justin, you know, are you happy with what you're seeing? And my first thought was oh my God, here's all these problems we have to solve in the future. And then I was like, wait, stop. We get, we're so passionate about this work and we look ahead and we know the challenges. We forget to look back and go, what? We have done what so far? This is amazing. I mean, the fact that you guys have a coastal master plan that's based on science, that talks about sea level rise, that talks about the need to think differently, that's amazing. The fact that Congress passed by a vote of 70 plus in the Senate, the Restore the Restore Act, which kept money in environment. If you had said to somebody four years before that, here's what it's going to look like in 2019, they're like, yeah, um, you know, I don't think so. amazing, amazing stuff. So we've got a lot of hard work ahead of us, but we have proven that when we come together and we follow these principles, bottom up, open talk about trade-offs, governance, we can make great progress. It is hard to see the forest for the trees sometimes, right? If that's if the correct application of that, but it's it's true. It's, it's We're just so focused on what's ahead and what challenges we do forget about. How do we overcome that last challenge or, you know, um, what do we learn from that? And, um, you know, things like the NBC Nightly News or the mm -hmm. New Yorker piece, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It, it does make you reflect differently. And again, that outsider's perspective, because sometimes we are too caught up in that, you know, I do hope the day that we can turn around and say, yeah, we changed that future without action and it could be something that you know we can be proud of so i 
very interesting perspective. And, and I'm sure that there were many other revelations at 10 Across too. So Justin, what, what about 10 Across stood out to you? I mean, you know, you're uh, Louisiana focused, but you are talking about being in different places like Texas and in Charleston. What stood out to you about 10 Across in Phoenix versus when you hosted them here in Baton Rouge? Well, first, I just have to say, I really love the way David put it. I think I completely agree. It's true. This this theme around democracy uh, just just overarches everything. Um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time collaborating with our with our friends and colleagues in the Netherlands and uh, and, and often, you know, reflect on the fact that the, the, the water boards uh, in in the Netherlands and Holland uh, are the, the, the oldest democratic institutions in the world. Uh, they were created to deal with precisely this set of, of, of problems. And the Dutch have been doing it for the last 800 years, making those trade-offs, looking from a bottom-up uh, perspective. So there's a deep history of, uh, of, of, of doing this, of approaching the work from this, uh, from this perspective. And you know, one of the things I really take away from uh, the conversations in 10X and, and, and others is that there is no shortcut. There is no, bottom, there is no top-down approach that works. You know, we, we at the Institute have been spending a lot of time developing what we call participatory modeling uh, under the idea that, sure, you can have modelers sit behind their computer screens and create models and, and, and test different uh, solutions. Uh, and that will get you wonderful science. But wouldn't it be even better if you bring the modelers out into the community and you have community members, stakeholders actually being able to say, looking at maps, saying, you know, that's an area of deep importance to me from an economic perspective, critical infrastructure. From That's where I like to fish. Uh, that's where I've been going with my uh, family for multiple generations. Uh, and then talk about what the stressors are and the potential solutions. Then put all that information, both the qualitative and the quantitative, into the models and have a back and forth with people saying, you know, hey, your idea uh, uh, really looks good and it's performing well in the model. Uh, and this other idea uh, sounded good, but it turns out, you know, if we could just move it a little bit to the to the southwest, we might get a better uh, a better result. So I think the bottom line of it is uh, 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 these the, doing it right is not easy. It's not cheap. But if we do it the right way, if we do it from a bottom up perspective, infused with the best available science, whatever our set of challenges are, whether it's too little water or too much water, or whatever our, our our resilience challenge might be we'll be able to generate really thoughtful solutions that have buy-in uh, from the beginning. Well, that's so interesting. And as we have a lot more to talk about, but we have to take a short break. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We'll be right back with Justin Aaronworth and David Festa. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. Justin, I think, you know, what you were saying earlier just really resonated so well, and it, it you know, kind of tied into a conversation we had recently on Delta Dispatches with Angela Chalk, um, who testified before Congress. Congress about her experience as a, you know, community-based organization, executive director, fourth generation resident of the seventh ward in New Orleans. And I mean, her message was, you know, you look at this chart, look at these impacts from climate change and other environmental stressors, but know that that is more than a chart or a graph. That That's me and that's my life and my story. And I think kind of your uh, explanation of participatory modeling and the way that 
we build that vision for the future, like David was mentioning, is just so important. Um, and it's something that has resonated a lot with people already who are experiencing these these challenges and opportunities. So I just wanted to make that plug for a prior episode of, of Delta Dispatches. Yeah, you and I talked about Angela being on the show a couple of times, like in other meetings and, and how we were both affected by that discussion. So big standard there, you know, yeah. so we talk about you after this. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Um, Justin, People usually talk about me behind my back, but that's for completely different reasons. Uh, Justin, let's talk about the panel that you were on. Um, you're, you were discussing the laboratories of the future for resilience and adaptation. So how are these regional laboratory, like w- tell us a little bit about that and, and how those la- that laboratory idea pertains to those two issues? Yeah. So we, we uh, on that panel, uh, we had the managing director of Rockefeller's 100 Resilient Cities Program and then uh, uh, Bill Fulton, who runs uh, the Kinder Institute at uh, Rice University in Texas. So we really got uh, a great perspective uh, along the I-10, but also nationally um, uh, and around uh, uh, other parts of North America. And, you know, in Louisiana, um, we, we oftentimes don't like to talk about ourselves uh, as being in a laboratory. We're not rats. We don't, you know, see ourselves as, uh, as people in this experiment. Uh, but in many ways, there is some truth to to that concept because you know as we move forward, uh, as the state moves forward with its plans around the diversion program, uh, you're talking about some of the the largest environmental restoration projects ever attempted in human history, and it's very exciting to be uh, to be a part of it. But again, the the commonality between the various laboratories, you know, Bill spent a lot of time uh, talking about uh, what's happening in Houston now and some of our our shared work. Uh, he's one of our collaborators. Uh, in uh, in Houston, and uh, uh, it, it really all points back to that same challenge of how do you manage the human aspect, the challenges. You know, for in Louisiana, we talk about some of the challenges related to uh, changing salinity and what that means as it relates to the diversion program. In Houston, we talk about the fact that uh, there's there's there would be great pressure around zoning in a way that does not exist uh, currently in Houston. You have people living. In, in floodplain areas that, uh, that, that require potentially some, some very different thinking. So really, I think to bottom line it, it all goes back to this question of how do we uh, take these, these technical and scientific uh, conversations that we're having and, and really look at how it impacts individual people, individual communities, take their input and their insight and their passion into consideration as we're making uh, important decisions. And David, um, you mentioned your panel kind of having that framing of, of democracy and kind of uh, visions for the future from the ground up. Um, were there parallels in terms of what Justin's saying and, and who else was on your panel? Well, there's definitely parallels. Um, and one of the one of the most uh, interesting people on, on the panel was a guy named John Ross, who's uh, just got a new book out called uh, oh, The Promise of the Grand Canyon. And it's about the historic trip that a gentleman named John Wesley Powell took down the Grand Canyon in the 1800s. Uh, and, and he actually, uh, John Wesley Powell, mapped out all of the watersheds in the West in the 1800s by walking around. I mean, it's an astounding <laughs> achievement, astounding achievement. But he, but he said, uh, Congress asked him, how should we draw the boundaries of states in these new territories? And he said, by watershed. Because uh, the, if you divide a watershed, there will be an inevitable power struggle between one half of the watershed to take 
resources from the other water, in this instance, from the other part of the watershed. So you've got to have, for democracy to work, you've got to have all of those, uh, all of those together. Sounds familiar. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we're finally, that was, you know, the 1880s, 1890s. It took us a little while, but we're finally starting to uh, uh, take that to heart. Even here in Louisiana, we have a new initiative called the Watershed Initiative. And so, yeah, this idea of what you do up there affects us down here or or even even that idea that somebody predicted that and said it was Mm going to happen. You know, we have National Geographic's right that said that we have to levy the Mississippi River and we know that there's going to be an impact. But that, you know, that. We for have future to do generations yeah, yes. to figure so, out. Yes, full circle, right? And can I just say one thing on that, sort of uh, thinking about the two parts of the watershed? Mm-hmm. Today, that's often divided into urban and rural, mm-hmm. right? Okay, and in the West, you've got these urban populations, and when they need water, historically, they've just taken it from the rural areas. I mean, Chinatown, the movie is all about that, right? Um, and and that that devastates farms, and it's bad for the environment. Abandoned land. If you don't have your farmer and you don't have water, you don't farm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's abandoned land. And that's not good for the environment because invasive species come in, all kinds of other stuff. But how many people in urban areas, if you said every time you flush your toilet, you're flushing a farmer's income down the drain. They'd be like, whoa, I don't want to. I mean, we love our farms, right? But there's just not that connection. Yeah. So we're working to reconnect the urban areas and the rural areas. Yeah, David, they don't even know where that water comes from, right? I, Probably most it of the time. It comes from the faucet. So, I don't yeah. know why is this, what's, what's so confusing about <laughs> <Right>. this. Um, <laughs> but reconnecting them so that so that the cities and the urban populations are helping farmers do things differently by paying them to do things differently in ways that still keep their farms viable, but use less water. And then that water can be shared with the cities. So it's much more a sharing concept than it is a taking concept. So, Justin, let's go to California. Sounds good to me. David said he'll have to do it. (laughs) Come on. I'm part owner of a bar. (laughs) Hey, now um, now the Sazerac makes sense. (laughs) So we just have a few minutes to wrap up, um, which has been a a really great and informative uh, show here. What's next for 10 Across? What? You know, where where are they off to next or are covering still some of the same themes? Um, that's for either David or Justin. Uh, let's start with David or Justin first. What's next? So next year, 2020, we're going to be in uh, Houston. Uh, so we're, we're we're moving around on the uh, on the I-10 uh, and uh, we're, we're sorting out exactly when it'll be probably in the in the spring around this time and in, uh, in, in 2020. And uh, it'll give us uh, yet another very different uh, different situation. So there's certainly similarities between Houston, as I was saying earlier, and and a lot of the issues we experience in uh, in Louisiana. But uh, but but you know they are of course uh, still dealing with the aftermath of uh, of Hurricane Harvey and what that has meant uh, for them. Uh, there's also uh, a really important set of conversations going on in that uh, in that area around uh, storm surge barriers, uh, how to develop them, should we develop them, what are the trade-offs uh, if you do develop them. Uh, looking at what David was saying earlier, you know, how does the urban area impact, in this case, because Houston is so big and sprawling, uh, areas outside? Uh, and uh, we see that same challenge, I think, uh, as, as 10X moves to, moves to Houston, uh, that David was pointing to about, you know, if you if you if you just have the conversation be around the city limits of Houston, well, you're you're definitely leaving out the 1.2 million people who are also in Harris County. But if you draw the line only in Harris County, then you've got problems too because that's not uh, that's not the full extent of the watershed. Uh, so uh, we're excited to to continue the 10x conversation 
uh, move it around and, and be able to invite uh, old friends and, uh, and and new friends to, to share insights and best practices. I think it'll be, uh, it'd be a lot of fun to be in Houston next year. Well, certainly an important venue and, you know, an important platform for these discussions. I mean, just as we had with Jeff and, and um, his colleague in, in Paris, you know, this conversation was uh, certainly very informative and fascinating. And, and David, for you looking ahead to you know, the rest of 2019, 2020, what's, what's really on your mind and what are you kind of excited about um, as we look forward? Besides the Sazerac. <laughs> Which you I do actually today. think about other things. <laughs> Which you uh, today. <laughs> um, so it's about sharing these experiences. You know, I, I see so much progress happening at, at local levels. And there then as we've talked about uh, on the show today and Justin's talked about numerous times, there's real there's real common themes. And I think one of the and I think those themes and and those successes are key, a key anecdote to you know, the depressing news that's out there. And look, you know, we've got some big challenges. But frankly, uh, while while this is a tough time right now, there are signs, there are at, at these local levels of how progress gets made. So let's celebrate those. Let's get out. Let's get more people talking to each other so that we can, we can do that in more and more places. Well, that's a great way to close off this conversation. Um, thank you so much, David Festa, Senior Vice President of Ecosystems with Environmental Defense Fund, Justin Aaronworth, President and CEO of the Water Institute of the Gulf. Uh, I hope you enjoy your uh, Kushan Delay po'boy, Justin, mm-hmm. and David, I hope you enjoy your Sazerac later. <laughs> well, I want one of those po'boys. They sound amazing. <laughs> they go well together, that combo. <laughs> I bet you there's some kind of uh, pairing of what goes with festival food, right? You know, does a Sazerac go with Kushan Delay? That's another Another topic for behind the scenes of Delta Dispatches. Well, thank you for listening. You've been listening to Delta Dispatches, and we'll see you next week.